Hey there, welcome to the Collide podcast. This is Willow Weston, the founder and director of Collide. And we are so all about being real about our brokenness so God can get into those hurting spaces and bring about healing. And that is why I love having counselors on the podcast. And today we have Sean Hofing on the pod. If you joined us last week or you're a subscriber to this podcast, which if you aren't, make sure you subscribe. But last week, we had part one of this podcast. If you didn't catch that, this is a two-part conversation. So if I were you, I would press pause on this one and go back to last week's and listen to that first before you hop into this conversation. And if you joined us last week, I know that you are wanting to hear more of what Sean has to say. He is so brilliant in the way that he thinks. And I love the way that he invites us into a deeper God awareness self-awareness and others' awareness. And this conversation uh, that I have with him in the second part of this interview, I actually, you'll hear, I end up having my own personal epiphany. I just learned so much from Sean, and I think you will too. So enjoy. When we have experiences with humans who hurt us, and, you know, it's, it's usually family or close mm-hmm. friends or people who are kind of in our inner circles, right? And mm-hmm. I'm kind of curious, what do we look for to recognize if a space or person is trustworthy so we can begin to feel like we can be vulnerable again? Um, well, clarification on that so is this someone who has already kind of injured you and you're not sure you can trust them or is this someone you're just kind of meeting for the first time i'm assuming it, it's uh someone is has hurt you because they're in your family so to speak and you're like can i can i yeah can i can we can this work in a lot yeah, of ways I, mean, I think both i think a lot of times even for myself but a lot of people i work with when we feel hurt uh we have a hard time knowing how to build trust back up with the person who hurt us. But we also go into that self-protection mode where we now don't know if everyone's going to be like that. Mm-hmm. And so we have mm-hmm. a hard time sort of seeing indicators of, nope, this is an unhealthy place to open up and be vulnerable and trust again. Or yes, this person is showing me signs of being a safe person. And sometimes, yeah. like you said, we we doubt ourselves almost to the mm-hmm. point where we don't even know anymore. And so we stop opening up. We start isolating. We create distance. We have walls. We do all that stuff. Yeah. Um Okay, I'll give you. I'm trying to be mindful because again, I can, I, yeah, I can dump a lot of content fast, <laughs> which makes sense in my head, but it doesn't necessarily always make sense in other people's heads. Um, and in a therapeutic context, you just can go a little bit slower. Um, so typically, what I talk to people, I think we can get at that if I talk to you about a couple categories. One would be just the steps towards repair. And then even kind of how uh, some broad categories of how mistrust can start to happen a little bit. And I mean, very broad. Um, but I think sometimes having those broad categories, you can put your own specifics, concrete examples into it. So the steps to repair that I often say, and I, this, I think it's been a while. I think I picked this up from uh, John Townsend 
a long time ago. He's a, he's a clinical psychologist. Um, and he, he adds an, an, an extra step in there, if I remember right. But I, it felt, uh, for me, it felt repetitive. It just felt like, I was like, it feels like you're saying the same thing. So my adaptation of it is, um, if someone steps on your toe, they need to own that they stepped on your toe. Because if they don't own that they stepped on your toe, the odds of them stepping on you, and I'm using that metaphorically. Mm -hmm. So whatever the injury is, if they don't own that they've stepped on your toe, the odds of them stepping on your toe are like 100% (laughs) or at least 99. Um, And if you think of that, I often use the example at a concert, right? If someone intentionally or unintentionally, if they don't know that they did it, the odds of them doing it again are very high. Mm-hmm. Um, so someone's at a concert, they're yay and excited and they step back and they step on your toe. They don't know that they stepped on your toe. They keep going. And then guess what? Ah, they st- unless you tap them on the shoulder and you say, Hey, hey sir, like you just, Oh, oh sorry. Then they're going to be a little bit more mindful, hopefully, um, uh, of the fact that they did it. So if they don't bare minimum, if they don't own it, odds are they're going to do it again. The second one, and this is the hinge point. This is where we get stuck a lot is they have to show remorse versus guilt or remorse versus shame would be another one that I would use. I mean, we can get into guilt, shame distinctions, but guilt often looks like, uh, Oh, I'm so sorry. I'm such a terrible person. I'm, 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 I'm a loser. I can't believe I did that. I'm an awful husband. I'm a lot awful spouse. I'm an awful da, 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 da. And all these I statements of how terrible they are. And what ends up happening is you're hopping around with your toe stepped on. You need to go over and take care of their ego because they're feeling so terrible about themselves and you're still left to kind of care for yourself. Is mm-hmm. that, that making sense? Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Remorse would be I stepped on your toe and I'm so sorry. Like, I know what that feels like. It's it's awful. Let me get you a Band-Aid. Tell me what you need. How can we make this Right. If I was in your shoes, I think this is what I think would be what I would need. But I don't want to assume that because I'm not you. Like you're coming up with some creative ideas, but you're trying also to give them agency. Uh, you're you're actually embodying a, a, a posture that you're genuinely repentant. Hmm. That does that making sense? Yeah, and I I feel like a lot of people that I talk to don't have a lot of experience with people who know how to show repentance how to own things, how to say sorry in healthy ways. And Mm -hmm. I love how you're differentiating. It's really interesting you bringing up the idea of um, someone sort of owning something by making the person they hurt feel bad for them. Mm -hmm. Almost like they become the victim when they're the perpetrator. That's very, very interesting. I'm sort of curious what you think about this. We have this phrase. I've used it so much with my kids. In fact, we had it in a scenario this last week um, where when someone hurts us and they've hurt us again and again, I'll say to one of my kids, um, download this information. What is this person telling you with their actions, with this 
with this experience that you've had with them. Download the information. They're telling you something. And I sort of do this exercise with my kids when they keep experiencing someone being untrustworthy, because at one point, it seems like when it happens over and over again, if you don't download the information they're giving you and recognize they aren't safe people, you keep walking in to this relationship over and over again, expecting different results, but you keep getting hurt because they're not Mm -hmm. trusting. And so I'm Mm -hmm. sort of curious, how do we recognize when someone will just never be trustworthy versus when a relationship is worth building back? So, so uh, the early markers would be that. So if, if they've at least owned it and they're at least starting to show remorse um, and here's where I'd want to, like, this is where we got to give everybody and ourselves a little bit of grace. You will almost inevitably lead with guilt. In the heat of the moment, when someone confronts you, you will probably lead with guilt or the other party will probably lead with guilt. So that doesn't mean right away you've got to write it off. It's do they, again, this is a parable like, right? But mm-hmm. do they come to their senses? Is there a moment where they, they might be like, oh, I'm so sorry, and then go off or your foot shouldn't have been there. Uh, like, do they get defensive? Do they do all of that? But once they settle past the initial, do they return and then have a posture of remorse? Do they come to their senses and, and have it? Because right away, some people are like, well, right away, they, they were guilty. And I'm like, yeah, but we're all kind of that way when we're kind of all of a sudden, like we've made a mistake. It Shame is is, is fast. It, it comes on us. We get defensive. Mm-hmm. So let's give, give, give them some grace. So it doesn't mean we're out of the woods yet. But um, but if they don't come to their senses and move into a remorse stance, uh, I, I would start backing off a little bit. Uh, I, I wouldn't even enter into it. And then where you're into it, it would be question would be stage three. It would be the third part. And for the third part, trust you. You if you, you have to think of trust as being like in clicks, one to ten. You can't go from one to ten in terms of building trust. We just we can't do it. Trust is built one to two to three to four. Unfortunately, trust mm. can go from ten to zero in one click. So going up the chain, it takes like one step at a time. Going down the chain, mm-hmm. it usually is one click at a time, but it can be that drastic where it's like we went from ten straight to zero based on the betrayal. Is that, is that making sense? Oh, yeah, that's so interesting because I think, I mean, I'm even thinking of an example for myself in a relationship where very high trust. And then when something happens where you feel like the trust is broken, you all of a sudden feel so distant from them. And it's that mm-hmm. going from that 10 to one, whoa, like all of a mm-hmm. sudden I'm down here and I feel so far away from you. And I don't know if we ever can get back to where we were. And it'll take so much time, right? Mm-hmm. Yep. Because yeah, so you what, can't get back to where you were overnight. No, no, there's no way. And and we, we just have to have that expectation because some, sometimes what works against us is we have that expectation that we're going to be at 10 tomorrow. And I'm like, it's just unrealistic for both of you to have that. And, and so what you have to think about is what's the next click? So what's, I can't get to 10, but what do I need to move to step number one? So sometimes when um, people have really been struggling, this happens a lot, but people have been struggling with alcohol and it's impacting the relationship and things are happening. And really they need like, some, they need some extra help to kind of work because they can't, they can't control it themselves. It's not that everything has to be solved tomorrow. They're never going to, they're never going to have a, a a drop ever again, everything is fine. But are they willing to go to counseling? Are they willing to go to rehab? So the question is, if, if unless something changes in the equation, 
you're going to keep getting the same answer, right? So um, if they're if they're if they're doing a certain behavior, and unless something changes that we know, like, okay, what are you going to do to assure me that this isn't going to happen again? Unless there's like a baby step, a click, mm-hmm. of course it's going to happen again because nothing has changed. And so mostly what people will do is they'll either make it, they'll, they'll say, in order for me to trust you again, you got to be at a 10. Oh, you're not at a 10. It's over. I can't trust you ever again. Hmm. Or uh, they just don't, well, not or, but they just, or they just won't engage in any way, right? Like they'll, they'll just keep doing the same thing over and over again and letting themselves get hurt. You have to figure out what's the next click. What, what do you need in order for them to feel that's going to make you feel, is it reasonable? Is it, is it in a reasonable, timely manner? So if it's like, hey, we're going to have this conversation. I think like I really need, I, I don't know if I can trust because you keep stepping on my toes. So I need you to take a dance class, <laughs> right? Like, um, mm-hmm. uh, but unrealistic would be, and you better have that class figured out by tomorrow and you better be dancing like, uh, dancing like the stars, like by tomorrow. It's like, well, no, in two months, uh, you will have been in the class for this long. You, you've at least gone online and you've researched where they are and you've signed up for the class, even though it might not start in a month. Like whatever it is, what's the next click? And you have to be thinking through that. Like what, what would be my next click? What do we do when we love someone and we will always be at a one with them? Mm. I might, you might have to. They don't move up clicks and they, they have never and they aren't going to, and yet you love them, but you know, you can't trust them. Yeah. Um, there's a couple things in that one. Um, what I hear in that question is the hopelessness, at, which comes in. And some of that question to me would be context specific. Mm-hmm. Um, because it, it falls in that same thing. If you keep doing the same thing you've always been doing, um, you're going to get the same results in a lot of ways. And, and so often when people come in and they'll say that, why bother? Um, this will be their first time in counseling. Like they've actually not, they, they haven't learned any new tool or they haven't actually had uh, the next, they haven't actually tried it. So on, on that level, a lot of times for people, I'm like, well, let's give this a go. Like, uh, and, and then again, we have to figure out what's what's a reasonable click. They might be like, yeah, but if I say that to them, it's not going to work. And I'm like, okay, well, then we say it to, like, I'm in the room with you. Uh, like, I'll, I'll help you. I'll name impact for you. Like, I'll, I'll let, let's figure this out and let's see if, if that helps. Or So there's often, like, there can be, there's more hope in there than people realize. Sometimes you just, you've never done it. You've never actually tried this new thing, so to speak, mm-hmm. right? Like mm-hmm. uh, outside help or, or, or whatever it is. Uh, and usually that thing for me is it's, it's naming impact and intent. Like that, that's often where those conversations have to go. It's impact and intent, impact and intent. So um, I, the impact was they stepped on my toe. It might not have been their intent. Um, but if it's genuine, this is where people often get wrong and couples will, will have it in, in my office all the time. They're like, well, it wasn't my intent. So they just need to get over it. If it legitimately wasn't your intent, then you have to change your behavior to match your intention, mm-hmm. right? So if it wasn't my intent to step on your toe and then the person says, ow, it really hurt me. And I'm like, you just need to get over it. Well, then I'm going against my intention wise because my intention was not to hurt them. I have to change my strategy. I have to be like, oh, I'm so sorry because that wasn't my intent. Like you're going to be more remorseful mm-hmm. because it really wasn't your intent. 
So you have to go back. Like just because it's not your intent in the first place doesn't let you off the hook, if that makes sense. How important you're talking about naming the impact and the intent. I see a lot of people who get hurt in relationship and they don't do anything. They don't express anything. They don't name the impact it had on them. They don't Mm -hmm. let the person know how hurt they are. Instead, maybe they do the slow fade out of a friendship or Mm -hmm. they live in bitterness and resentment, or it maybe comes out in like a passive aggressive sort of jabs or, you know, that kind of thing in a marriage. Why is it that often people feel like they shouldn't name that they've been hurt? And what can we do to get better at repair? Um, in this one, you can, I can feel like, yeah, you can feel the heaviness in it, uh, as we're talking about it, because, um, sometimes, uh, sometimes because of that defense structure, coping strategy structure that we have, sometimes we don't name it because we don't realize it. So we don't actually realize like, Hey, that actually isn't okay. Uh, because no one's ever taught us that it actually isn't okay. So then it's like, well, it must be just me. Like if I was just, if I could just deal with this better, if I could just be a better person or yeah, I totally deserve it because I'm doing all these bad things. Like, um, so sometimes it doesn't get named. And so sometimes some of the work is just like helping people, like just validating be like, it's never like, that's not okay. Like dignity, respect for people. Like that's just a basic, like, no, it's not okay to say like, it's okay for you to name impact in, in that way. The other one I think people often will not is because it's it's too scary because what if they actually did intend to do it? Uh, if they didn't intend to do it and I can just give them the benefit of the doubt in my head, that is easier to hold and deal with than if like, oh, you might have actually intended to do that and are intending to do that. And that means like that feels cruel. <laughs> Um, and then what do I do with that? Mm-hmm. That, is that, is that making sense? Oh yeah. That's, that's very interesting. It's almost easier to believe in a good intention than to actually confront a, a harmful one. Yeah. Um, oh, go ahead. Well, and part of it, it's tricky. Like, uh, this is what's so tricky about in the work is, uh, I forget the technical psychological term for it, but if, if you've ever if you ever bought a car and you buy a specific car or a specific color, so let's say a white car, everywhere you go after that, that's all you can see is white cars, right? For a certain period of time, because your brain is kind of focused in on that. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately, that's also what happens in relationships. We start to hook in on, again, we can't imagine this going any other way, right? So uh, it becomes almost a self. I'm going to name this. They're going to they're going to ignore it. I'm going to name it. They're going to ignore it. So why bother trying? We can't imagine that this could be any other different pattern. And, and that hence, someone else coming in, a therapist, sometimes even a friend, pastor, coming in and trying to give some different imagination around it and a lot, validating it, like not just saying, oh, you see, but validating it, but simultaneously mm-hmm. saying, okay, what if we tried a different wet pattern? Like, instead of you guys going left, you go left, you go right. We've got to try and have you go left, right, and the other person go left. Like, we've actually got to try and change your dance steps in this one. Mm-hmm. Um, so you, so I want to validate, like people are feeling it because it's happened to them and it is happening. Like they're not crazy. It's like, yeah, that you're, you're not saying it because they, they have stepped on your toe dancing about six times. And of course, they're probably going to do it again. And you kind of already intuitively know what their response is going to be. 
Um, but that the difference would be, okay, well, how do we have you maybe change your dancing in the equation and learn some tools to be communicating while you're dancing? And then hopefully it can change the dance a little bit. And sometimes it can't. And then sometimes the way you set boundaries around that are two different ways. One, if you set a verbal boundary uh, and the verbal boundary doesn't work, uh, then you have to you have to create a physical boundary, and so you have to actually create some distance, and that gets trickier in in relationships that you love. Uh, it gets much more complicated, like mm. uh, in terms of our value systems and how do I deal with this. And my usual again north star for people is uh, what you want to be looking at. It, it, so if there was three three different levels, and the goal is going to be the center level, on the top level, I can have compassion for you but not and lose compassion, not have any compassion for myself. And on the bottom level, I can have all kinds of compassion for myself, but not any compassion for you. Hmm. The goal in the middle is how do I have compassion for myself and not lose compassion for you? How do I hold both at the same time? Hmm. And in most cases, and that becomes the filter. So sometimes what would be if I try and like, right, if I'm just being compassionate for you, well, then I just have to stay. Uh, but if I'm being compassionate for myself, maybe the most compassionate thing would be for me to create some space. But that actually might be the most compa- compassionate thing for them, too, because it might be the learning lesson that they've, they've needed for their entire life to be like, yeah, like your impact does matter. And it's you're having this impact on people. And unless someone clearly articulates that, that actually is sometimes the most compassionate thing to do. Your mental, spiritual, and emotional health is worth time, energy, and investment. As women, we can sometimes struggle to find the space and time necessary to focus on rejuvenating our minds and our spirits. But the truth is, our health is worth it. The Collide Counseling Bundle is an online course featuring 12 videos of mental health professionals giving their best advice, journals, resources, and so much more to help walk you through the topics that are most relevant to your life, anxiety, broken relationships, body image, and more. We are so thrilled to be making the resources for a sustainable healing journey available for the same investment as what one therapy session typically costs, $99. It's time to invest in your healing and wholeness. Learn more at wecollide.net slash counseling bundle. What happens when you're in a relationship with someone who you decide to be vulnerable and you go to them and express that you have felt harmed by their actions and, you know, you give it your best foot forward to do that in a healthy way and they can't own it and instead they turn it back and and make their harmful behavior something wrong with you. You're too sensitive, you're, you know, you're a wounded bird, you're insecure, whatever, whatever the thing is, what does a person do then? Um, so at that point, realize you're in stage two of that, right? Like that would be, that would be guilt versus or shame versus remorse. Mm-hmm. So they're not, they're not owning it. And not only they're not owning it, then they're kind of, kind of pushing it back, back towards you. Often when people show in my office, especially couples, they get really, really dead set on, they almost want it to be like a court case. Uh, and they want me to be the judge. 
right? Like who's right and who's wrong mm. side with me so that we can kind of triangulate and change you and, and you can be right. And this is true where family sometimes too, like they'll say those things like, my child is just acting this particular way if they, if they just knew. And for me, it is less about whether it's true or not. What matters to me is that the person believes that it is that, right? So if I think you stepped on my toe, right? I confront you and say, hey, it feels like you stepped on my toe. You start saying, no, you're too sensitive. Uh, I didn't step on your toe, da, 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 da. But I believe you stepped on my toe. You have to go with that data. And then what you have to do is you have to say to yourself, if I had felt that someone stepped on my toe, how would I feel? How would I act? What would I say? What would, and you can see it's very, they're acting very rational because that is their belief. Mm -hmm. Right. But too often we try and get in like, yes or no, or we try and make it really like, again, about them and, and deflect and do all of those things. But often I'll, I'll slow couples down and be like, okay, I, I don't actually even care if it happened. Like you don't have to prove to me right or wrong. You have to defend your honor on either side. She, usually this is the case. She believes you stepped on her toe and she's walking, she's, she's moving that way. She's limping. Mm -hmm. What would you do? Do you want your wife just to kind of like run, run with a broken leg? Like, what would you do? What would you want? What, what would you feel about that? It usually causes the person to pause and be like, oh, well, if that's the way they're seeing it, mm -hmm. um, let's figure this out in, in a lot of ways. Does that, does that make, is that making sense? Oh, yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, if you express that and you get down to the feeling and someone still can own that they made you feel that way over and over and over again, they try to put it back on you. Is that mm -hmm. then a time where you set up the the verbal and physical boundaries that you're talking about? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. yeah and, and it's what usually that's the phrase you're going to hear in there is you can't make anybody feel it. Right. So like, I can't make you feel anything. That's usually the comeback that comes in there. Uh, and there's, and it's true, right? We can't actually, you, you have to own your feelings. You have to own, I have to own my feelings. You have to own, you can't make, but that comes back to that intact in intent impact conversation again, be like, okay, I, the fact of the matter is I do feel this way. Um, so it might not have been your intent. Uh, you might not feel that way about it, but I feel that way. And it's dishonoring if you don't accept that I feel this way. That's actually the hurtful thing is you're, you're leaving me alone in my pain because you're not validating that this mm -hmm. is how I feel. Yeah. Uh, for, for really quickly in that, like your, your general North Stars relationally, that th this is kind of what I, you know, categories to kind of look for in yourself and other people that I often use with people is like if Johnny's was, if Johnny was jumping on the bed and Johnny's a kid or Johnny's an emotion, what do I do to get Johnny to stop jumping on the bed? And we one one thing that I can do is I can contain him. And what I would do is I would pick Johnny up and I would stick Johnny in his room and I would close the door and he would be contained. Wouldn't be jumping on my bed anymore. We can do this emotionally. We can kind of contain and press down, right? We can kind of push it down and keep chugging along. My other option to get Johnny to stop jumping on the bed would be to attune. And what attunement looks like, it's a musical term, uh, but I would sit down next to Johnny and I would say, hey, buddy, what happened? Something happened at school? Oh, I don't want to talk about it. Uh, on the bus. Ah! And then uh, down the road as he's telling me the story, you know, Fred called me a whatever. Um, I haven't solved the problem, but Johnny will slowly start uh, jumping on the bed. Um, uh, inevitably. And same here. When you start, like, too, when you were getting listened to at the table, 
slowly what was bouncing on in here started to slow down because it was being attuned to in a lot of ways. And you can contain in a lot of ways. Like containment is not bad. Containment is a great tool. Um, but we, we, you usually use containment when you're in a crisis and you need to contain a situation. You, we usually contain when we're in a rush. Uh, like we got to shut that down. We got to keep moving. You notice it when, when you're, I, I mean, I have a younger daughter. You're like contain. Okay. Let's get moving. We'll deal with that later. We got to keep going. Blah, 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 blah. You're, you're containing, you're containing, you're containing. And in a lot of those situations, what the person is doing when you're bringing your pain is they're trying to contain it. It's not that big a deal. So, mi- so minimizing is a way to contain it. It's not that big of a deal. Like you're fine. Or they'll tell a joke because it's, it's laughter. It's trying to contain it. It's trying. You can contain with shame. If you were just a stronger person, you'd be able to deal with this. Yeah, you're right. Right. It, 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 it forces you to kind of try and contain the problem and, and move it away in, in some sense. Nine out of 10 times what we need in that moment is attunement. Uh, I don't need you to contain. So this is true, especially with people who have anxiety that are in my room. If you tell someone who's anxious to stop being anxious, to just to contain it, they're going to, and I had a heart, I had a like uh, heart rate monitor on them. I would watch their heart rate go up as the person's being told, like trying to contain their anxiety. It's like pushing down a beach ball. It's going to come back like twice as fast. What they need is attunement. And attunement would be like, yeah, that makes sense to me that you'd be feeling a little bit anxious. This is your first time in your office with me or yeah, that situation like that, given your story, that makes, and then I'll watch them start kind of calming down. Mm. And so the third one, and this, this comes back into that category is, is repair. So if inevitably you will over attune when you probably might've needed to contain. And so what that looks like is you've, you've had, you have kids, you've had younger kids, right? They're so worked up. And you're try all the like, and you're trying to talk to them about it, but there's no way getting them down because they just need to sleep. What you'll do is like give them a hug, contain them, get them to bed, and then maybe the next morning you'll have an attuning conversation with them. So you try to attune. You're like, ah, oh, this isn't working. So then you'll do a little bit of containment, and then you off. So repair is about offering the thing that you maybe should have given or would have been more helpful to give. Uh, if you missed it and same would be containment, right? If, if I quickly threw Johnny in his room, I would go into Johnny's room and I'd say, Hey buddy, that was more about me. Dad's a little impatient right now. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't have a kid named Johnny, but, uh, I'm a little impatient right now. That was more about me. What, what's going on? Some, like, this isn't, this isn't normal. So like, is something going on? Like, I'd get curious and offer the attunement. And the thing about repair is, uh, people think you have to do it in the moment. I'm like, no, you can always go back and repair it. That's, that's literally the gospel. Uh, you can go back and repair. Um, hey, I missed you. I contained, I pushed you away. I minimized your situation. Tell me what's going on. Uh, and that's that guilt remorse shift that can happen in people. And so often I say to people like, use those as kind of measures in your own body. Am I trying to contain this? Am I actually attuning to it? Um, and, or, and what do I maybe need to repair? And so going back to, into my own story, I really contained a lot of my stuff until I went into my season of burnout. Uh, and then I started to attune to it. Uh, and it, attuning is way harder, <laughs> way harder. It takes more time. Um, yeah, it, it takes more time. I, that's the main one. It's just like, oh my goodness. Like I could, uh, if you think of it really concretely, like, oh, if I just contain my daughter and get her in the car, I can do it in like less than a minute. Uh, but if I just want to really attune and let her be and kind of follow her and get her in the car, probably going to be about 10 minutes. Um, and there's times where it's like, 
yeah, I need to contain because we've got other commitments. We got to do this. This is, and there's other times I'm like, I'm just containing you because I'm impatient and this has nothing to do with you. Mm-hmm. Um, so well, containing other people's pain, you're saying it's so much easier. It's so much easier for, for a lot of reasons, but the one I keep thinking of, cause I'm resonating this with this so much on many levels. I mean, without going into a lot of details, but as a child of an alcoholic and a single mom who was an alcoholic, mm. uh, all my pain had to be contained almost as though it didn't exist. Whether it mm-hmm. was, oh, you have a black eye, tell people you were in a car accident, what, whatever the thing was, it had to be contained because the only option for attunement would have been ownership her owning it. She couldn't Mm -hmm. own it. So my pain had to be contained. And I think about this in other relationships I've had that have been harmful where someone else needed to get rid of my pain. Like they hurt me, but they need to take my pain and make it go away because they don't want to own that they caused it. And so Mm -hmm. even when you're describing a couple coming into your office you know, and you give the example of a husband and a wife, and he maybe thinks that her pain is ridiculous. And he's saying it didn't even happen, but she still feels pain. He wants to contain it because it's easier to say it didn't happen rather Mm -hmm. than attuning to her pain because it takes so much effort and work. You want to put it in a box, make it go away and move on because you don't want to take ownership for how you might be causing other people's pain. So I mean, I resonate with this so much. And adding on to that one last, like, a maximum of that is you can't bear in others what you can't bear in yourself. So uh, if someone can't bear grief, they won't be able to bear grief in somebody else. They will, they will contain it. They'll, they'll say, always look on the bright side. Mm-hmm. They will not be able to pause in the grief because to varying degrees, the level that you can contain emotion inside yourself is the level you'll be able to contain in other people. Mm-hmm. So if you can't contain someone else's anger, uh, I'd be curious about like, well, what's your relationship to your anger? <laughs> mm-hmm. um, if you can't contain shame, like someone, and you've got to make someone feel like if someone's feeling some shame and you're like, oh, I got to cover you up right away. And I got to make sure that I got to take care of you. What's your relationship with your shame? Because you can't let shame. And, and so you think about it in that with couples, you're right. Like they don't want to own it, but they also can't bear it. They literally can't bear. Um, usually it's shame. Like that's the one that I would say is because most people were so caught up in having to be a good person. Uh, and I, I'd say to people, like, try and be good-ish. Like, as soon as you try and be good, then you feel all this shame because you feel like you're a bad person if you make a mistake. And it's like, no, this is human. Um, so some of the work is learning to be attuning is you have to attune. Like, what do I have to keep giving attunement into myself? And you'll notice this with your kids, too. It's huge. Mm. It's like, oh, I can't. If they're, it's like, I can't bear it because I can't bear it in myself. Right. This is so good, Sean. I'm literally having a personal epiphany. This podcast is not for me, but I feel like it is in this moment. You bring up that, that point. It's so interesting because even when I use the example of my, my mother who was an addict, she couldn't handle her pain. So she had to numb it. So she numbed mine by containing it. Right. It's so fast. Exactly. Yes. Yeah, we had a breakthrough today, folks. I want to end with one question because I knew I could talk to you forever. But you said about repair and the work of repair. You said something a minute ago. You said it's literally the gospel. Can you tell me, you've been a studier of Jesus for a very long time. You're very thoughtful about 
who he is and what it looks like to follow him and how you speak of him. And I'm curious how you see Jesus as a God who has a heart to repair. Hmm. Well, the literal lens, if we want to talk about like having a biblical hermeneutic, which is what's the glasses that you read the Bible with. And so much of the work is, I don't think people always know the lenses. What's what's their interpreting filter that they kind of put on? And everyone has one. We think, oh, I just read the Bible. I'm like, no, you've got a filter. Um, my filter very early on and always has been, it would be the parable of the prodigal son uh, or the parable of the prodigal God, however you want to phrase it. So. Uh, the entire narrative of the Bible I, is for me is always framed in that story, but there is a sense of like open arms, come back, like come back, come back, come back. Um, it, in terms of those opportunities to repair, and it's it's always an invite, right? Like it's an invite to a party. Mm-hmm. Um, and and I think when the older son can't accept it, uh, the the father says. Uh, you were always with me and everything I have is yours. Uh, and he can't, he, that truth is around him and he can't, he can't accept it. He can't receive it. He can't own it. And in the younger son, it took him to kind of go away. And even then he didn't believe it kind of coming back. Right. Mm-hmm. But there is this sense of uh, reparation, I, I think literally is the gospel. And, and it's it's not that it's not in other faith traditions, but it is a unique part, I think, in a lot of ways of it, because there used to be a sense of like you were just given to fate. Um, uh, it was your karma. It was like fate was very much a thing of it that that there was no way that you could change or repair. And so, a lot of the myths in Greek mythology, like Oedipus, right? He's just doomed. <laughs> He's doomed. He's going to end up sleeping with his mom and everything. Like it, a lot of the Greek mythology is like you're doomed. It, it's just your fate. It's your stars. In a lot of ways. And the, the unique thing about the gospel is like, it's like, no, you, you get to actually start co-writing, rearranging this story. And, um, and if like, you know, Judas and Peter, two different characters, right? Peter makes a mistake and comes back. Judas can't handle it. Uh, so he, he kills himself, right? Like you could, there's a repairing moment of betrayal. They both betrayed Jesus in a lot of ways. Jesus was open in both ways. And, and yet each, each character couldn't kind of receive it. And there's something unique in that. I think the both are in that story because it's again asking, like, okay, you, you can't, like, it's an invite. Here's the invite. You, you can repair. You can repair. You can repair. Um, so, but again, this all goes back to your original question too, like that understanding of of the father in that parable. I, I'm growing into it um, in, in a lot of ways because I've got my own story, right? My own, um, my my story is a lot would would be a different kind of trauma, but it was much more neglect. So there uh, there was a lot of, well, your story has a very similar, yours would probably be a little bit of both because when you're, when there's alcohol, it's, it's neglect, but there's also, there can be abusive behavior in there. Right. So it can actually be a combination of both. Mine was not that I didn't have a lot of things cared for me, like general, like food and that kind of stuff, but certain emotional things that you just need to flourish wasn't given to me. Uh, and that over time, if you don't get the ingredients you need as a plant, it's, it's hard to flourish. So there is a sense where, you know, in my perspective, looking at Jesus and the father, or the father is just like, well, like it's a barren wasteland. Like, no, there is no desire. There is no, and yet Jesus comes in and uses that story intentionally and says like, uh, I'm the older son, right? I'm not like the older son in the parable. I'm the older son. I'm going out and actually finding people and trying to repair. I'm not, 
I'm not just waiting for you to come back. I'm actually actively going out and saying like, let's repair this. Let's fix this. Let's, mm-hmm. let's bring you back. Let's bring you back into the party. So mm-hmm. that making sense. Oh yeah, totally. I, I appreciate how you weave Jesus and his great love into all of our stories. And I appreciate your humility and your wisdom and you have a way of not only inviting us to see with fresh eyes, but to keep having hope in the broken places. And I'm very grateful for that, Sean. Well, thank you. Thanks for... Thank you. That that gives me hope because there's times where I, yeah, I I don't always see that myself. So thank you. Thank you for uh, reflecting that back to me. Yeah. Thank you for sharing today. And I know there's going to be people who are going to want to connect with you. How can they do that? Yeah, probably the easiest way would be my website, which is www.storylinecounseling.com. There's a secure contact form on there that people are welcome to reach out. I'm not, as as we talked about earlier, I'm not really in a place to take new clients because I'm pretty full right now, but still people are welcome to reach out if they they need to. Okay. Thank you so much, Sean. Absolutely. Wow, I don't know about you, but I just gleaned so much from that conversation. And you probably heard me. I actually had a moment in that interview that helped me understand something that I don't know I could have ever put in words before. Um, The idea that people who hurt us want to contain our pain because they don't know what to do with their own. That's a profound statement that Sean shared with us, a profound idea. But what happens when people contain our pain, when they don't validate it, when they want to take it and push it away, when they want to numb it, when they want to not own that they've hurt us? The biggest issue with that is that we're left without repair. We're left bleeding, we're left alone, we're left wounded with no help in sight. So friend, I hope that you will find a space where someone can come alongside you and attune to your pain and attune to your wounds and walk you to the one who can repair all of them. If you don't have a space like that in your life, My prayer is that God would give you someone who could do that for you, whether it's a good friend or a counselor or a pastor. And if you need help finding someone like that and you can't seem to find it organically, you can reach out to us in in an email at info at wecollide.net and we'll help you. You can also contact us on our website. But my hope for all of us is that we can enter into a safe space where our pain no longer has to be contained because it seems to get worse and sicker and festers and hemorrhages. But when we can have it come out and we can name it, that's when Jesus can start healing it. So that's my hope for you. And that's my hope for myself. I love that we have a God who has a heart to repair us and our broken relationships with each other and with Him. So this week, may you run in to the God who repairs us all. 
We'll catch you next week.